Glad Tiding is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Welcome to Glad Tidings, the Athletics Everton FC podcast. It's me, Greg O'Keefe, and I'm as ever joined by Paddy Boyland, my co-Everton correspondent. And we are also, in this episode, having an extra special Blues guest, none other than Leon Osman, former Everton and England midfielder. And um, he's going to be joining us shortly to discuss cult heroes, a certain goal in the UEFA Cup, and much more. Before that, me and Paddy. Hello, mate. Hi, mate. How's it going? Pad, it's a certain player's birthday today. Let's start at the top with this. He's someone who, speaking you know, on a personal level, as, as a fan, um, before I, I covered Everton as well, he would always get me out of my seat when I was at Goodison Park watching him. It's um, Mikel Arteta. Obviously, I uh, had a bit of a rough time recently, but um, what an unbelievable footballer he, he was for Everton and you know, obviously then later on for, for Arsenal. But I suspect I'm speaking to a mutual Arteta fan here, aren't I? Oh, absolutely. And I don't know if you've seen, but the um, I think it was the official Premier League page put up a goal montage, uh, a goals montage for Arteta's birthday in, in, in kind of in celebration of it. And quite a lot of Everton fans have already picked up on the fact that there's not one Everton goal in the montage. It's all, um, it's all goals what? from his time at Arsenal. Obviously, not some fantastic goals. Goal. So there's no there's, there's no Everton goals at all. It's it's not like it's not a best of montage. It's just a it's his birthday. Mm. Let's celebrate some of his some of his goals. Um, and being the Arsenal manager, I guess the rationale is let's get loads of Arsenal fans engaged about their manager. Um, yeah. But the the glaring omissions are, are obviously there and unknown to Everton fans who have been quick to let the the, the unfortunate person on the Premier League social media know that um, that they, they should have been included. I think the only thing here is that obviously Everton did their own video. I don't know if you've seen it yet yourself, um, but Everton did their own goals montage of his time at Goodison. Yeah. And I just went through them this morning before I started work, just looking at all these fantastic strikes. And maybe that, that wasn't Arteta in full. I don't necessarily think he was he was necessarily that play. He wasn't a Frank Lampard, for example, who would score those goals time and time again from range. But when he did score, they tended to be spectacular. And he was just such a, an elegant, classy footballer in midfield. And I think sometimes like we, we look back on the David Moyes era and we think it was kind of rough and ready in Route 1. But whenever we discuss these sides... You think back to Leighton Baines and Stephen Pienaar connecting together. Leon Osman, who was a really good footballer in midfield. Mikel Arteta, Tim Cahill, Yakubu and Louis Sahar, people like that up front. And you remember that too. A lot of good football being played at that time and a lot of good footballers in the side. Arteta was one of them, but just an outstanding player. Another bargain um, that Everton had kind of picked up for, I think it was a couple of million when he eventually joined after initially being on loan. 
And yeah, of course, there's some there's some bittersweet moments in the montage because you look at the Fiorentina game, um, which he scores in, and then obviously Everton go out on penalties. There's a wonderful free kick early into his time at Everton against Villarreal away from home, a game that I think it's probably best not for us to talk about even now. It's still no. one that angers me to this day. And then you've got a, a whole heap of other fantastic goals. It's hard to pick a favourite, but more than anything, I just remember him for being a, a classy footballer at the heart of Everton's midfield. And making the team tick, really, he was the one that set the tone, the tempo in possession. Uh, and I was only a, a fan at that moment in time, so he was kind of somebody that I grew up idolising from an Everton perspective you must have had a different perspective now yourself as, as a journalist covering Everton at that time, dealing with him he was obviously eloquent, um, he's still eloquent, he's a great speaker and he's ended up in management what what, what do you kind of remember fondest about the, the player and the and the person Yeah I mean I, so I, I was um, didn't start covering Everton until 2009 so I'd already been um, the news reporter before that and, and would go at weekends on my, on my season ticket to Goodison so I kind of had both aspects of it uh, and I loved just on a, on a fan fan level I loved watching him when he was on the right before he yeah. sort of converted to central midfield I just he used to I've said this so many times he used to just have full backs absolutely going spare he, twist of blood wasn't, wasn't in it the step overs you know the shimmies the, the feints and his, his movements and it's just his speed well he'd go both thought. ways wouldn't he he could exactly, you know, for any fullback, you know, someone like that. He just, he wasn't scintillatingly quick, but he didn't have to be. He was, uh, he could be unplayable. Um, and then obviously, then he moved into the central midfield, which was probably, you know, his his, his forte really for someone with mm-hmm. such an array of attributes in his in his sort of toolkit. But as someone to work with as well, I think um, he he was. He, he was a really interesting fellow. He spoke three or four languages. He was super intelligent. He was a real student of the game. He could be terse sometimes. Actually, he could be. He could sometimes be quite grumpy, um, and and didn't seem to be a huge fan of doing prep of media stuff. So, um, you know, that was that was a side of him that you saw that he, he was there to play football, and that was his absolute focus. Uh, anything else was just a distraction. Um, that's not to say he, he, I believe to all accounts he was a lovely fella and. You know, in more relaxed times, he, he was fun to be around. But certainly, um, he just struck me as someone with that supreme focus on what he was doing. And I think you almost get a sense when you look at his press conferences as Arsenal manager and the fact that he's come from someone like Pep as well, who maybe isn't the biggest fan of doing press. You know, you get someone, that, that single-mindedness, you can see why there are two peas in the pod, can't you? both slightly abrasive when they get asked the questions they don't want to be asked um so in in that case a, a true disciple an apprentice of pep I, I don't think anybody's been surprised by his route into management purely because like you said he was always a thinking footballer he was always kind of there, there was obviously technical ability and, and a lot of other things but a lot of this was cerebral a lot of it was picking up pockets of space, really intelligent yeah. footballing play and kind of finding weaknesses in the opposition line. And it's, it's funny you mention it because he, he came through as you probably, if, you, if you're using a number, he'd be a number six. He came through yes, as a number yeah, six yeah. and obviously sat in front of the back four dictating attacks and in a manner probably pretty similar to how a, like a Sergio Busquets or a Daniele De Rossi would do. Um, but like you, I remember him being utilised left and right of the attack, yeah. mainly on the right of the attack, like you say. And because of his ability to go both ways, he was quicker than people remember him at that time as well, before he got kind of serious injuries. And I remember a goal where I sat in the Gladys Street against Bolton Wanderers. 
It's probably in 0708. And he uh, picks up yeah. the ball. Yeah. <laughs> he picks up the ball. If you if, if, if we're thinking about the same one, he picks up the ball just inside the Bolton half and kind of twists and turns and comes in field. And on his weaker foot, and it, I use weaker foot with kind of big quotation marks here because he yeah. was he was he was a two footed player really. His right was slightly stronger. He just hammers this left footed shot to break the deadlock, I think it was. I think it was nil nil or one one. It was really tight in the game. And he just absolutely blasted it into the opposite corner of the net from 20, 25 yards. And the Gladys Street, it was obviously the pandemonium of a of a late goal in the Gladys Street. But it was kind of the multiple facets to him because he, he could do everything really, couldn't he? He, was, he? he could win the ball back. He was a really crisp passer. Elegant when he was dribbling. He'd score goals. Um, and a big, big loss when he eventually left. In um, I think it was 2012, wasn't it, to go to to Arsenal? Um, I just feel sorry for him that he didn't get a Spain call up because probably at any other time, no. certainly up to that period, he'd he'd have probably been a shoe in given his Premier League form. He was one of the Premier League's best midfielders. He was always kind of in and around Team of the Years and up for nominations, Play of the Month, all that kind of stuff. But he just had so many quality players in front of him. That was kind of, it started to be a real dawn for Spanish football, a real golden era. And I think at any other time, he'd have either kind of walked into a midfield or certainly a squad. I, I just feel disappointed still about that, really. Yeah, I used to gripe about it in, in, in a column week in, week out. I don't think Luis Aragonés, <laughs> or whoever the manager was, was particularly uh, avid reader of the Liverpool Echo. But, you know, it, it astounded me that he couldn't get um, a run in the Spain team. But, but then, as you say, he had you know Alonso later on in his career. Before that, he had Xavi and Busquets, and it couldn't have been a worse time to try and get in in that midfield. Really, um, yeah. having said that, I do think that uh, it, it, it often, when you looked at what he became, it amazed me that he, he didn't make it really at, at Barca or PSG. And although I was gutted when he left, uh, there was kind of like I was I was pleased in a way that he was able to go and play in the Champions League. I would have rather he'd done it with Everton, but he was able to go and, and achieve that and, and prove his, his level um, in in, yeah. in the sort of elite European competition, if you like. And I th- think that was something that was, he was desperate to do. He actually wanted to leave the summer before, yeah. if you remember. Uh, yeah. And David Moyes kind of talked him into giving it another year at Blissett Park. And, you know, it was, it was fantastic. But he'd obviously had that big knee injury as well, um, which changed the way he played. It didn't necessarily detract from his ability, but it, it changed him as a player. But what a player. And and obviously brilliant in this episode to be joined by none other than one of his teammates and someone who spent a lot of time in the dressing room yeah. on, on the pitch with him. And Leon Osman who's going to be uh, is going to be joining us in a wee while. So yeah, happy birthday Mikel. What a guy. Arteta never an acres of space outside him. Arteta himself Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you've got the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash tidings and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of this show, you'll get two extra free beers. That's 10 free beers. Beer52 or Beer Pioneers. 
They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest craft breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then, they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power's in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. So just go to www.beer52.com forward slash tidings to get your case free. And don't forget, right now, listeners to Glad Tidings get two extra free beers. Well, as we said, we're going to be joined by Leon Osman, former Everton player and now club ambassador. And uh, here he is on the line now. Leon, hello, mate. Hello, how's things? No, not too bad, not too bad. Just uh, trying not to mention <laughs> mention the obvious as we focus on the football. We might not have it on the pitch at the moment to, uh, to distract ourselves, but we can certainly get stuck into a couple of topics. As we were discussing earlier on Twitter, we, we asked some of our listeners to... Um, Give us an indication of what, what they fancied us chatting about. And the first one of the first things was goals and one goal in particular. Paddy and I were trying to make a list last week of the best goals we've seen at Goodison Park. And we both sort of immediately fixed on your strike against Larissa at UEFA Cup group stage in the 07-08 season. Pad, it wasn't really, there wasn't much debate about what would be the goal, was there? There was other goals we were talking about, but this this was a special strike, wasn't it? No, I think this is the best goal by quite some distance I've seen at Goodison Park, and obviously there have been loads of other notable ones. You, you think back to like Wayne Rooney's goal um, against Arsenal in his first spell, you think back to as well in his more recent spell, that goal from the halfway line against West Ham. But I think for a number of different reasons, from the the finish, the way the ball kind of arced into the net in the Gladys Street, which I was sat behind actually as a supporter that evening, two things like the the team move. I think we sometimes forget that it starts in defence. You've got Baines kind of overlapping with Pienaar. And there's a nice flick from Tim Cale as well. And it's just, it's, it's a nice it's nice to look back on this period because I think Everton fans remember that side, that David Moyes side, really, really fondly. It came in a in a run in the, the UEFA, UEFA Cup, as it was then, where uh, Everton were winning games quite comfortably. Looked like they could go far in the competition until they obviously faced Fiorentina um, at Goodison. So for my money, probably the best goal I've seen, period, but definitely the best goal um, at Goodison Park for for an Everton player so it's, yeah great to have Leon on to, to kind of talk through that one because I was sat right behind it watching it kind of curve into the Gladys Street it was, it was a fantastic goal and a fantastic feeling that night Ozzy one of the best goals or the best goal you scored? People ask me that quite regularly um, I'd probably say it was the best goal I've scored you know for everything that that in, was involved in it I, you know as you just mentioned the we won the ball back, if I recall, just outside our own penalty area. Uh, playing in European competition, quick overlap, attacked at pace. Pinar, uh, sorry, Baines and Kale down that left-hand side, and you know, a delightful flick from from Stephen as he was always tended to do. I'm not sure he knew I was there. He claims he did, but uh, I was coming <laughs> up, in my opinion, very quickly from midfield. And uh, yeah, there was I knew there was nobody ahead of me. I knew that. It was there perfectly to uh, to strike a goal, and I hit it. It stayed. It stayed hit, didn't it? One one of the things, Leon, I think that the fans remember really, really well from that particular era and that that goal as well. The connection between Leighton Baines and and Stephen Pienaar. 
Was was that something that kind of they developed kind of meticulously on the training ground, kind of day after day, or or was it just was it something different? Was it just more the kind of the connection between two two individual players? I'd go along as more of a connection because quite regularly, you know, especially especially towards the end of their playing time together, they weren't allowed to play on the same team because they only ever passed to each other. That was a train, and so, um, so they just, you know, when it was a big moment when they they were allowed to play on the same team, and <laughs> it, it was it, it was just a, a real understanding that, you know, they wanted to pass the ball to each other. They understood that they would pass the ball back to each other. They'd make a run, and that would be their first thought. Can I play it back to to me partner? If not, then I'll look somewhere else. I was very fortunate to to play in that same team with them, and I tended to. You know, as a central midfielder, I used to always play on the left side of that just so I could maybe receive that that first pass off them. And quite often, if I pass, <laughs> if one of them passed it to me, and you know, I switched the play or went somewhere else, they'd give me a right earful that I didn't just pass it straight back to them, so they could start <laughs> all over again. So uh, it was it, it was a really good time. You mentioned before about that period. That's arguably my favourite period to have played in the favourite team. We were qualifying for Europe three out of five seasons or something. We got to the, the cup final, we got to the semi-final of a of a competition as well. And you know, you could probably name name the team off the top of your head, you know. So uh, to score the the goal that we're talking about in that period as well is uh, I'm quite proud of that. I think you know what when when Stevie just sort of back heels the ball and, and you run onto it and hit it. There's a moment afterwards, and I don't know, I can't remember why, but he's kind of like watching and he's got his arms up, almost as if he was asking for you to pass it back to him. Do you remember the, the moment I mean? Is he trying to claim something or is he just celebrating? <laughs> I think he was probably surprised that I, that it was me coming up and that I had the shot more than anything. He's, uh, you're probably right, though. He, he would have wanted the ball back. He would have moaned until it found the back of the goal. Um, but I think this, it was surprised from all the team. <laughs> Surprised from all the team when they saw it was me. You know, I, I wasn't renowned for me shooting from distance. I was more renowned for, for getting closer to goal and, you know, maybe passing them into the corner or, you know, giving the keeper the eyes. So, you know, when I did manage to, to score from 20, 25 yards-ish, you know, it was always it was always one to talk about for weeks in the dressing room. <laughs> Looking back at, at all of these goals, what unites most of them is that they're scored. They tend to be scored at least in the Gladys Street. And I think as fans, we, we draw up this ra- romantic notion of, of scoring goals there and, and what that means. And it kind of almost sometimes means a little bit more to do it at that end. And they've got famous quotes from Howard Kendall about kind of the Gladys Street sucking the ball into the net. Is it the same for you as a, as a player kind of coming through the ranks? Does that kind of add to the... To this being kind of a special goal for you, I know you've scored some notable ones at the Gladys Street. There was that one against Portsmouth as well in the 04-05 season. Does it mean that bit more to you to score at that end, given the kind of the romanticism about it from the fans? Yeah, it's surprising, but yeah, it does. And that also goes far as to say under the lights as well. It always just seems a little bit, a little bit more special under the lights. You know, my three, my three favourite goals is that one, the Portsmouth one you've just mentioned. And um, yeah, I scored a goal in my 400th appearance against West Ham, which was literally just a tap-in at the back post, but I'd run the length of the pitch. We broke. Uh, Samuel Eto'o whipped it right across the face and I slid in and we won 2-1. Um, and I was the captain for the day. And, um, you know, it was my 400th appearance and we won 2-1. So that, that, 
as much as it was a tap and that's my favourite goal because to score at the Gladys Street the winning goal with the arm band on my arm those goals those moments in front of the Gladys Street are just they just make it that extra bit special I think uh, I couldn't uh, at this one pass without you. we're talking about goals where you've struck the ball but I'll never forget the header against Man City um, unbelievable Speaking of distance, <laughs> distance. After he whacked me on the side of the head, I, I forgot all about it. Seriously, were you a little bit concussed after that? Oh, in today's climate, I wouldn't have been able to continue without a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> I saw the ball. I just remember, you know, as I think we were we were needing a goal, or we I think Sylvan had just equalised actually, and uh, right, we yeah. had the momentum. We could feel it, and uh, you can always feel that in games and. And I think Phil Neville got the ball in the right-back spot. And I thought, I'll make a run across. And for some reason, Victor Anachibi was pulling away. Um, so I just thought, right, I'll run into that. I'll run into his spot. I'll run into where he's going. And, um, you know, Phil left the ball in there. You know, at the time, as it was coming in, I was thinking, I can't believe he's floated one here for me <laughs> to get smashed in the air, you know. But he, he just popped it up in the air. And thankfully, I don't know if I may be surprised, company by by jumping as high as I did but you know I managed to get there first and I just knew I had to fully commit to the header because I had to you know continue I had to add the power to get it to the far post so you know by the time I'd finished with my head momentum company just caught me flush in the temple and um, as that was happening I saw the ball travelling towards the back post and then um, you know the next thing I know I was on the floor and I could hear everyone cheering and people were on top of me and I was just I was dazed. I wasn't. I wasn't out of it, but I was certainly dazed. And uh, by the time I got up and got back to the halfway line, I had a, a massive lump on the side of my head, which, you know, I was still. I remember speaking to the physio and just asking him, you know, did it go in? And he was like, "Of course it went in." You can hear the cheers. I was like, "Great! Right, come on then, let's go again." And and off I went. But to these, in these days, there's no way you'd be allowed to continue. Looking back to that that era, Leon, um, like like I said earlier, it, it feels as though Everton fans of a certain age, certainly ones that were kind of born more recently, kind of do romanticise that period and look back, I think, fondly at some of the combinations, some of the games and, and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, the season where, where the club finishes fourth in, uh, in 04 05. What was, what was special about that side for you? Because I know, obviously, loads of good individuals as well. But I spoke to John Heitinger recently and he was saying one of the things that mattered most to him was that every day in training was a fight, was a battle. And that was kind of instilled by David Moyes. And it was a kind of a really close group of individuals. Is that how you look back on it as well? Was it a case of kind of the team kind of coming first and, and David Moyes instilling that attitude and driving the place? Yeah, well, you know, the team and the and the, the the teammates that came first, without without shadow of a doubt, we it, it was a bit of an us against the world mentality at one point, you know, because by the time I forced my way into the first team, I played the last three games of the season before when the team finished seventeenth. Um, so the following season when we finished fourth, that was my first full season in the squad, and we and we we'd gone away to. So we had those three games and at the end of it, we knew we'd had a terrible season in the dressing room. You know, David Moyes gave us a big speech about how disappointing the season had been. And I think we, in fact, I know we just lost 5-1 to Man City at the at the Etihad. So, you know, it was get, go away, you know, think about it in the summer. Make sure you come back next season with a, you know, we're going to be better next season. But there was so much uncertainty whether David Moyes would still be there next season after that, after after a poor season. So, 
you know, we went away. We, we, I wouldn't say we let our hair down, but we were focused on the next season. We had a bit of a break. And then when we came back, everything just seemed a little bit, a little bit more, you know, serious. I don't think that's the right word, but, you know, we had more aim. We had more determination. And then we went away to, to Houston, which was brilliant because it was in America where nobody cared about the Premier League at that time. So it was just, you know, let your hair down time. You could do what you wanted and no one really cared that you were in the Premier League, playing in the Premier League. So we had a really positive seven or eight days out there, a little bit of relaxation, a good bit of work. And we really bonded as a team. And when we came back, you know, I remember scoring a goal against Aston Villa uh, later in the season. And we were still making reference in my celebration. I was still making reference to that trip to Houston. So, you know, it was it was such a big time that preseason, starting the season. Um, we had a real team bond. We had a real team togetherness. And then we started winning games. And, you know, we just continued and continued to do that as the season went on. Well, this podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, you just need to go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic and Stitch Fix is spelled S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X, all one word. Fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style, budget, size and shape and your clothing needs and wants. A personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each handpicked especially for you from their selection of 100 brands, including established names, up and coming designers and exclusive brands that you won't find elsewhere. Try them on all at home, style them with other items in your wardrobe, and then you can pay for what you want and send back the rest. For your stylist time, you end up paying a charge of a tenner, which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. But remember that you try before you buy at home. And this is a really, really interesting point. Delivery returns are free both ways, so you don't need a subscription to sign up. Stitch Fix, again, allows you to save time. They do the shopping for you. And if you're like me, you're really not a massive fan of dragging around shops looking at clothes. You can discover new styles. Your stylist could find great items which you've never picked out when shopping for yourself. I definitely need that. And enjoy top styling tips. The experts there will give you ideas on how to wear the items they pick out for you. We won't get on to French talks this week. I think we... Uh, well, I... That was an education for me last Setting week. <laughs> it was an education for me last week. I don't, I don't know if you were looking at your um, Twitter mentions this week, but no. one of the responses was about the podcast. Oh, yeah. At least on mine. We were both, I, I forget the name of the yeah. of the person on Twitter, so apologies if they're listening to this, and I've, I've, because I have forgotten the name, but it was effectively on the lines of at Paddy Boyle, that Greg O'Keefe. Um, Never mind your pieces this week. I'm just looking forward to hearing about French tucks again. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks to whoever picked up on, on that. And I'll, I have to confirm, sorry to confirm, neither of us have got French tucks going on as we speak, nope. but there's always a new sartorial day tomorrow. <laughs> anyway, you can get started with Stitch Fix today and you can support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That's stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. There were some massive characters in that team, as we said. And again, when we were, we were chatting on Twitter earlier to, to the listeners, they were talking about um, wanting to discuss cult heroes. Most teams that, you know, kind of have such a memorable period as that did have some cult heroes. And looking back, you know, you you were playing alongside most of them. We've got to start with this probably one that in this era, Duncan Ferguson, one of many Blues' cult heroes. 
Um, you can't really sum it up, I would imagine, in, in a few sentences. But just what, what was it like playing alongside him? Well, first of all, joining the, the squad and the team, uh, you know, training around him, that was that was intimidating, you know, for, <laughs> for the reputation he had and going in there thinking, I better not upset him and I better put the ball where he wants it to. <laughs> but he was a really nice fella, you know, he was he, he was so welcoming for, uh, certainly for young players coming through and for any new players that, you know, he'd be alongside you, telling you where you need to put the ball, but always encouraging you and always telling you it's, you know, it's positive. But then he did have that moment in him that, you know, if you messed up a cross where he thought he had a chance of scoring, he'd Lincoln well let you know. So that was what was great about him. He was warm and welcoming, but also, you know, you've all seen when he's on the field, he does have that that real edge to his game. And, you know, I played with him towards towards the end of his career, I suppose I'd say that, you know, he was uh, probably not as mobile, probably couldn't jump as much as he could at the middle of his career, but he was still really intimidating to, to defenders. He, he adjusted his game to, you know, to back into them rather than to jump above them. Um, and he certainly gave us another dimension um, whenever he was on the field. He was, uh, he, he, I mean, he's developed into a, a coach now, hasn't he? I don't think anyone saw that coming um, from, from his time as a player, but, you know, he's certainly got a lot to give back. What what have you made of his of his coaching over the last few years? Obviously, he, he took over as interim boss when when Marco Silva was sacked, and I think he was the one really that kind of grabbed the the bull by the horns and and pulled Everton up the table. There were, there were a few kind of fears of relegation. What have you what have you made of the work he he's done both firstly as a as an interim boss and now under Carlo Ancelotti? You, you kind of said there that you. Looking looking back, you'd you'd have been a little bit surprised by 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 what happened. I mean, is is he potentially, given what you know about him and and kind of the passion he has for the club, is he potentially somebody that could go on to kind of, in your opinion, lead the club permanently in in the future? Well, he's already showed that he can do that. You know, I don't think he was ready, even by his own, um, you know, his own words, he wasn't ready to take on the the management job full time. But you know, I'm taking nothing away from his coaching. Because you know, from what I'm hearing, he's a he's a he's a very good coach. But I just think some people are born to be managers rather than coaches. Some people instill that fear. Some people are better with, you know, just sussing out tactics rather than being on the coaching field every day. And in the modern world, in the modern era, everyone seems to have to go and do their coaching badges, coach for four or five years, and then become a manager. Whereas, you know, the days of knowing I'm a manager, I'm not a coach. I'm a manager. I'm becoming one. Um, a few and far between, but I would have said that he was one of them. Looking at the at the other suggestions for, for club players, there's a guy who's been in the news that just this week, actually, Stevie Naismith, another player that I, th- I think you would have played alongside, wouldn't you? Um, yeah. At Hearts at now, he's just volunteered to take a 50% wage cut in order to kind of help keep Hearts afloat, which I think you would probably say, most people who, who, knew, who know Stevie would probably say it wouldn't surprise them. Um, you can understand why Evertonians took him to heart, can't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, both the players you've talked about, you know, and I'm not sure how many you're going to bring up, but I'd, I'd say they're all going to be the same. The, the Evertonians could see, regardless of ability, they could see their commitment to the club, their commitment to, to winning football matches and their desire when they were on the field. And, you know, Duncan and, and Stephen Naismith are two that, that gave you all of that. Stevie was, um, you know, he did get in the team straight away he had to bide his time he That's right, yeah. wasn't the most technically gifted player that we had uh, in the squad but 
he arrived on things. He was he had desire to get on the end of things. He had desire to make runs into the challenge. He had desire to rough big massive centre halves up. You know, he really <laughs> wanted to he really wanted to take part in the game. He had no fear, and uh, he scored some really important goals for us uh, in his time at the club. And as a character off the field, he was he, he was great as well. He really did seem to settle on Merseyside very very easily. He was great in the dress room as part of the part of the lads and to be honest we were all sad to see him go. Another name Leon that's been brought up certainly by people on Twitter when we asked this question earlier is Dennis Strachwellersi and another player that you'll have played with in your time at Everton. Just just kind of going back to when he first joined the club I mean it was a really difficult period they'd from what I remember, they they lost Mikel Arteta to, to Arsenal close to the, the end of the window and brought in Royston Drenter and, and Dennis Strachwellersi. Strachwellersi, as it happened, was a relative unknown to kind of an English audience. What do you remember of kind of his arrival at the club and your kind of first impressions of him on the training ground? Is it, is it fair to say there were kind of a, a few rough edges there to iron out in his game? <laughs> I think that's putting it kindly, if I'm being honest. The... Uh... Let me start by saying what a lovely fella he was when he came into the club. You get some people coming in, um, you know, that can be a little bit difficult to integrate into the team. You know, maybe there's a language barrier. Dennis didn't seem to speak much, if any, English. And yet he always had a smile on his face. He always wanted to be part of the conversation. And he'd laugh, even though he quite clearly couldn't understand what was going on at times. But he just wanted to be a part of, of Everton and part of the dressing room and the culture and everything. So... You know, that was that was my first impressions of him. I knew nothing about him uh, when he joined the club. Um, you know, technically probably lacked uh, a little bit to make it as a as an Everton number nine long term. But, you know, as I mentioned with the other two, you know, I mentioned it earlier on, he certainly didn't lack for effort. You know, he gave his all, whether it be in training, whether it be in the games, whether it be, you know, over trying to make him, trying to learn English. You know, he, he really did give us all and that was another one that we was um, a bit sad to see go because you know the amount of effort he made and you know to it was never going to be easy for him when we let Mikel Arteta go um, and brought in Drenthe and Strachwellesi they were never going to be able to to get near the reputation of Mikel. I think that was an era wasn't it Ozzy where uh, the manager was just trying things or because the budgets were so tight he, he would just try things some of them would come off and you'd end up having like ridiculous bargains who'd go on to make hundreds of appearances. I'm thinking like oh, um, Seamus Coleman and and then others, you know, kind of, he'd look at, say, Tigre in Uruguay and, and bring across um, players like, like Dennis. And, um, and probably another one that didn't work, and, you know, Paddy mentioned him there, was Royston Drenthe. And I don't know what, it's a funny one because obviously you'd have known him like far, far better than me, but I just found that his brief time at the club just seemed just really odd. It just, he almost seemed to, he had this huge reputation from Real Madrid and, you know, he, he sort of carried himself like a bit of a superstar and obviously had, you talk about Dennis's lack of maybe technical ability. It, it was clear Royston had that, but maybe didn't have the desire at that stage to really be a hit in the Premier League. Well, if you could um, join Royston and uh, Dennis into one player, we really would have had a player in our hands because... As I said, Dennis's uh, desire and Royston's ability, as you said, but you know it was quite clear, quite quickly, that Royston wasn't going to become the player that David Moyes wanted him to be. Uh, their attitudes were complete to the game were completely different. Royston wanted to play in moments, and David Moyes wanted him to be part of every moment of the game. So 
Um, it was clearly, you know, it was great. It was great off the field. You know, he was part of everything that we did, but it was never going to work. And David Moyes quite quickly was des- not desperate to get him out, but, you know, was clearly trying to keep him away from the rest of the players at times and making sure that his attitude didn't sort of spill over onto the rest of the team because, uh, you know, it certainly didn't mar up with what David Moyes watched from the game. <laughs> no, I just remember him wandering around before a game at Craven Cottage once. And again, you say he, he wasn't anywhere near the rest of you. You must have been, you know, in the dressing room. And he was just down by the tunnel, just shotgunning cans of Red Bull, which did, at the time didn't <laughs> seem to be the most ideal sort of sports side of preparation for a game. I think he started as well. But uh, yeah, strange character, but fantastic footballer. Yeah, definitely. You know, great um great footballer just you know there was a, there was a few players that came to Everton that came with great reputations that had all the ability in the world and just didn't happen for I wouldn't say desire as such but determination you know all that you know Andy van der Maeder's very similar yeah, yeah. that uh, yeah. you know came to the club with all the ability great skill great technical but uh, just didn't get it going on the field it was obviously at that time Everton got to a semi-final against Liverpool, a game that everybody here and listening will will know well. The, the, the late Andy Carroll winner, and that day Magai Gay I think started on the left and instead of Royston. And I remember the team sheet coming through, and a lot of people kind of turned around to me and said, "Ah, oh, why is why is Drenton not playing? He's got the kind of the quality to to make a difference here." Magai Gay a bit untested. What's he going to be like at Wembley in a in a Merseyside derby? Do you think, looking back in hindsight on that day, Leon, that it was crying out for somebody like Royston to kind of open up the game? Or was it just that by that point, he kind of reached the point of, of no return with, with David and maybe some of the rest of the squad? You know, you look back in hindsight at most games that you don't win and wonder what you could have done differently. Yes, Royston had the ability, but as you said, he, I think he'd let the team and let David down on a numerous occasions and had lost the trust of the manager and you know, I think that David felt, as we all did as the teammates, that we needed to have everybody contributing on the field, you know, during the game. And, you know, it was a big game. And could we count on Roy uh, to to do that with us? Yes, you know, it could have worked out. If it had have worked out with him, you know, not starting the game, we'd have won it. There'd been no issue. Now we look back and we'll always question that. But, uh, you know, I still feel that we should have won that game. It might be a bit of blue. As uh, as we'd all say, but you know it was um, just one mistake by a good friend of mine, Sylvan Distan, really changed the game. You know we were one 0 up at half time and should have, I felt maybe should have had more of an advantage at that stage. And you know Liverpool came out as we'd expected them to with a, with a, um, a strong start to the second half um, as the team that were behind. But we rode that. We got out. Uh, we defended well. And uh, just as we started to, to get back into the game and certainly change territorial advantage into their half, it was a it was a poor back pass that really put us on the back foot for the rest of the game. Yeah, it was a, a tough one to take. It always is losing it uh, down at Wembley, especially losing to them. Ozzy, we're uh, really grateful for your time, mate. Loving your work as an ambassador and uh, on BBC Sports, Sky Sports and across the, the range of punditry um, and I just hope you stay safe during this time and, uh, and keep in touch thanks for coming on thank you stay safe everyone well that was great really enjoyed chatting to Leon there and some fantastic memories from his time in Royal Blue um, elsewhere on the Everton feed on the Athletic site this week it, we, we did 
talk about COVID-19 and coronavirus and um, in as much of an upbeat manner as is possible, we looked at Everton's response to the pandemic um, and Pad, it was it was a piece that it, it took a lot of work and I think there were there were a lot of positives. Yeah, I mean, obviously the the, the subject is is far from far from ideal. It's not a pleasant situation, and I think to some extent, obviously, people are wanting relative escapism from that. But I think it is still something that we have to discuss. We still have to talk about the implications and and the response to COVID nineteen. And like you say, there's a lot of good stuff that the club are doing at this moment in time to mitigate against the worst effects in the community. So you spoke to somebody that knew about um, Everton's Blue Family Initiative, what that entails, people delivering parcels to elderly residents in the in the area uh, outside of Goodison. Um, also people, like we've seen on social media, we've seen like Carlo Ancelotti, Bill Kenwright, Denise Barrett-Baxendale, and several of the players picking up the phone and speaking and checking in with um, Everton fans who need it most at this moment in time. So uh, there's an element of, uh, uh, at least for me, I think it, it's uplifting um, t- to see the impact some of those calls are having on um, the people over the phone. Uh, it's great to see the work that the club are doing in, in tough times to to, to fight um, and, and help out the community. Everton obviously always do this very, very well, it must be said. But we kind of went broad brush on it, didn't we? And that, that's why I think it was it was it, it took a while to pull together because we we looked at Everton's response community wise, but also what happens to a whole heap of Premier League players when they're not able to train at Finch Farm? Finch Farm's closed. The live buildings for club staff that's closed as well. So what happens to kind of fitness regimes? How do how are players spending their spare time? All these things we looked at and. We ended up with some kind of quite eclectic stories from people kind of reading leadership books to PlayStation tournaments between members of the squad, kind of dog walks, and then the serious stuff, players being sent gym equipment so they can do workouts, club staff checking up on the workouts to see how everything's going, um, and everyone keeping in touch. It's it's kind of a close-knit, as we mentioned, it's a close-knit squad in the main, um, and everybody's kind of checking in on each other, we're told, to, to make sure everybody's okay, so... Do check that piece out if you've if you've not seen it already. Um, hopefully, it's it's kind of a thorough um, look at just about every aspect of the, the the front line of the club at this moment in time, from the community side to the footballing operation, which which still has to continue, still has to, to take place in case these players are back in in June or July at some point. Um, so yeah, kind of a, a, a tough time all round. Um, but Everton are doing doing their bit, and I was I was heartened by by what we were told of the of the efforts, particularly on the community front. Yeah, absolutely. So as was I, um, you know, the club, as usual, stepping to the plate in, in, in troubled times. Well, thanks ever so much for listening to this episode. It's been a pleasure chatting to Ozzy and getting some fantastic uh, memories of happier times in blue. Cheers for listening. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.